and welcome to this episode of The Scream Squad. This is your girl, Jamie Rigetti, the mother of direwolves, and I'm joined here in the dungeon, as always, by my awesome co-host. Chico Leo, in the house, in the dungeon. (laughs) Um, So this month, uh, as you guys may know, we're doing a giveaway on our Patreon um, for the Underworld series, which of course is a vampire series, and there's werewolves and all this good stuff. Uh, But we thought maybe it would be fun to kind of touch on that theme for the main podcast and uh, talk about vampires. But because it's the Scream Squad, we kind of had to have uh, a little something more to it than just vampires. So we actually, our Chico here, thought of this really interesting idea. What about vampire movies where, Chico, how did you put it? Are they or aren't they? Are they or aren't they? Yes. Well, we put put together a list of, of, of movies that actually it's not clear if, in fact, the um, the the main character is, in fact, a vampire or not. Um, and I think in uh, well, in, in one of them, it's not the main character, but in certainly in one of them, the main character certainly thinks that he is a vampire in another. I guess uh, I guess he also thinks that he is a vampire. Um, and in the final one, well, it's not clear whether or not the character, or at least until the very end, it's not clear whether the character who might or might not be a vampire is a vampire or not. And it's never explicitly stated. So, you know, there's the the, the vampire world itself, I, I feel like, or that genre could be split into so many, We, you know, you could have a vampire film podcast where it's a different theme of, of vampire film every week. So this is just one little facet of vampire movies that that, that we're going to talk about um, tonight. Yeah, because I just feel like, you're right, I mean, there's just so many different kinds of vampires. I think the um, kind of the use of vampires from the folklore roots and, you know, its connections to the Black Plague, to the resurgence of vampires when, you know, the AIDS crisis first kicked off. I mean, they just, uh, vampires kind of speak to so many different levels. There's um, a sexuality component to them. I just, you know, there really is, there's so much to unpack that um, vampires are just something we're always going to have to come back to. Um, But I kind of like this theme that you picked up because I think it's really interesting, this idea of people who are convinced they're vampires and you kind of, you don't really know. Um, So why don't we dive into the first movie, which um, is kind of a cult classic, I would say, right? Um, I mean... Well, they're all, I think in their own way, they are all cult classics. That's very true. Maybe the, the better known cult classic. Right. So this is, are we, we starting with Vampire's Kiss? Yeah. So Vampire's Kiss was a huge bomb in the late 80s. It definitely did not um, make anywhere near its money back, but has, in fact, you know, become a a cult favorite. And one of the reasons is this was really the movie that established, you know, for about a decade or so, you know, Nicolas Cage was this really insane leading man, like in in in, in, in insane, I should, maybe that's not the right word that I should use, but... Um, his choices in his acting were unlike any other, you know, leading performer in a movie. And this was coming right off of um, Moonstruck, which uh, actually won a, a tremendous number of, uh, of Oscars. It was a really big, big movie in, in like 1987. And this was the movie that he did following it up in 88. And um, in this one, and, and he, he plays a literary agent who is definitely mentally ill. 
And he thinks that he was bitten by a vampire and that he's turning into a vampire. And as his sort of mind deteriorates, um, he, you know, he manifests or he thinks he's manifesting more and more of the sort of things that we associate with with being a vampire. Um, the movie is famous for, among other things, Nicolas Cage actually eats a water bug, a giant cockroach. Um, in like the, it wasn't a fake. He actually definitely, you know, eats, you know, eats the actual, the actual cockroach. And, um, but his delivery in the movie is very unique. And this was sort of the first movie that kicked off what became sort of now we know, you know, when someone says a Nicolas Cage performance, they're sort of referring to something. And this was the first movie with a quote unquote Nicolas Cage performance. Yeah, he really... I guess I should state like right off the bat, like I hated this movie. Right. Um, and we'll we'll dive into reason the reasons why. But man, he is so great. If you can watch Vampire's Kiss solely for Nicolas Cage, it's worth it. Um because he just he's absolutely insane. It's all of the things that you you know, especially people my age or younger who kind of, you know, see the memes or, or you know, this is everything that, that you um, kind of expect when you hear about some crazy Nicolas Cage performance. This is it. I mean, this is not the bees, but, but like way better. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's really funny and it's, it's interesting. So, so okay, so as Chico kind of stated, you know, he plays this literary agent who is incredibly entitled. Um, it's kind of, um, one of my, my colleagues over at Film School Rejects had said that uh, he would love to do a, um, that screenplay about this character and Patrick Bateman, like, together. Right. Because... Because I guess, uh, you know, American Psycho in some ways, and I think Chico, you had said this to me when we were chatting about it, but American Psycho is almost a parody of this character. You know, it's it's this, it's, it's you know, um, the greed is good, you know, Gordon Gecko kind of. Um, yeah, Bright Lights, Big City. I feel yeah. like that, you know, Brent Ellis Easton, like there's really yes. a, or Jay, that's actually Jay McInerney or Jay, uh, but, but, but Brent it, Easton, it really yeah. is, is totally the first of these movies or one of the first ones that's really examining that 80s yuppie entitled you know and again american psycho which is pro which is definitely obviously a better movie is examining that from after the fact you know like you know american psycho takes place right around the same time you know late 80s but it's you know filmed in the early 2000s or in 2000 vampires kiss is examining that period, but from, it's made in that period. It's sort of like Apocalypse Now is a Vietnam movie that was made during the Vietnam War. Platoon is a Vietnam movie that's made 15 years later. And so Vampire's Kiss is more like Apocalypse Now in that when they went to film club scenes in Vampire's Kiss, they didn't have to dress them up because they just went to right. an 80s club, that that, that kind of thing. Um and um, but yes, exactly as you were saying. I mean, he's as he's as unlikable as Patrick Bateman. He, you know, he uh, Nicholas Cage is doing this like sort of really ridiculous, like rich guy, like continental accent. Oh my god, it's so bad! <laughs> it's so bad, and it kind of drops in and out throughout the movie. Yes. But it's supposed to because because he, he's losing his mind to a certain well, degree. he's losing his mind and and also he turns it up when he wants to impress people yes so if he feels people aren't really worth impressing he doesn't really use it it's just kind of funny because he's just so 
fake, you know, he's such a fake character and he's shallow and pointless. And, you know, half of the thing is you see him with his like, uh, analyst or his, you know, therapist, whatever. And, um, you know, he's one of these guys that goes out to, you know, a club or a bar, brings home a different girl every night. And, you know, it's like, oh, my life is so useless and shallow. And so um, one night he meets Jennifer Beale. Actually, so Casey Lemon. Before that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he meets her. And how do you stand Casey Lemon's up, man? She's yeah, so like the best. That's, well, no, she she ends up. Uh, yeah, she ends up dropping him after he. After he well, stands he, her up, but yeah, yeah Casey her. Lemons of of Candyman, Silence of the Lambs, School Days. But this this was actually, I guess, this came out the same year as School Days. But I saw this first, so this was actually the first movie I saw her in. And uh, yeah, she's she's his first sort of quote unquote conquest. You know? and you really see how he is very vapid with her. So you see that he. Um, you know, he like he literally leaves her at a museum like he pretends to go to the bathroom, and just leaves like you see that vapidness. Um, he also meets Jennifer Beals in a bar right. um, and she's the one that bites him on the neck. And it's kind of implied as you go forward that so she's visiting him every night and feeding on him. So you really see her as a vampire, like you see the teeth, you see her biting and sucking his neck and all that. Um, and but it's, it's not clear that that's as as time goes on, it's not right. clear that that's actually really happening, right? And I was going to say that a lot of his behavior initially is explained as like she's kind of possess- possessing or controlling him, yes. and not allowing him because there's a scene where he's going to meet Casey Lemons to kind of apologize and you know like try and make amends after the museum incident, and she prevents him from leaving the house, and so. Is that really true? Probably not. But, you know, there's this implication as you're going along that, oh, well, maybe he's under some sort of spell. Maybe she's making him act like this. But no, <laughs> he's just kind of a dick. You know, he's a, he's an asshole. He is. I mean, he's an incredible asshole. And so I think one of the things just in talking to you, one, one of the and the, one of the ways that it manifests itself the most is how he treats his assistant slash secretary mm. at the literary agency. Um, he has her researching, looking for some old contract for a writer, and she can't find it. And he basically sent. He's just he's he's a tremendous asshole to her, yelling at her, embarrassing her, humiliating her in front of um, other employees, and making her spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours looking for this like minor contract from a long time ago that in fact the writer at one point in the movie is like oh don't worry about it I, that's fine if you can't find it but for whatever reason Nicolas Cage uh his character Peter Lowe is terrible to her and she's played by uh, Maria Conchita Alonso mm-hmm. um one of the few sort of big 80s Latina performers one of the things that I would say mitigates it a little bit is that, A, he is an asshole who, in fact, she is involved in his comeuppance at the end. And it is actually a movie where I think he's really the only male character. His therapist, who there's a lot of scenes with his therapist, um, is a woman. Jennifer Beals, who is either his vampire maker or just this woman who seems to possess him, is 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 a woman um casey lemons you know like basically it is actually a movie that um you know with the exception of nicholas cage who is in pretty much every scene the only other actors in it for the most part are in fact women 
And so when you have a movie with all women and the main, and except for this one guy who's this terrible dick, and, and he is, there's no one who would watch this movie who would be like, oh, wow, Nicolas Cage is really cool, except for some horrible, like, Wall Street asshole, you know. And, and, and because also, I have to say, it, it, because Jennifer Beals and Casey Lemons are in it, it's not a case of the white guy just shitting on the one woman of color in the movie. In fact, the other women in the movie are women of color as well, with the exception of his therapist. Um, and so that's really my only defense of the humiliation um, that he puts her through. And then also just that it is a horror movie. And I would compare almost his treatment of her to be like the treatment that Michael Myers tries to give to the women in Halloween or that Jason gives in the in the women in Friday the 13th. You know, he's, you know, at one point he's stalking her. He shows up at her house and, you know, screams at her on the phone. I mean, at the end of the day, these things are not as bad as, you know splitting her head open with an axe or a machete or something like that. But I, I'm not defending his behavior in any way. Yeah, I just can't agree with anything you just said. I just, right. uh, it's, you know, this isn't the great debate, but I just, it's, so the subplot with Alva, who is, you know, the secretary is incredibly uncomfortable. It's like super rapey. He's constantly harassing her. And then he, there's an entire scene where he attacks her um, you know, supposedly to try and suck her blood, except he fails. But she obviously, you know, views it as a sexual assault and thinks that because she passes out that um, he raped her. And it's just incredibly uncomfortable. Then she goes home and eventually tells her brother. And so the comeuppance at the end is kind of like a really... It's it's just, you know, it's like this watered-down, misunderstood rape revenge where... You know, she, her brother, essentially, at the end, he kills Nicolas Cage for her honor, which just completely takes the power away from her. And then also when you contextualize it by, oh, well, you know, she really wasn't raped. So it it just, I I just, I really don't like it. I just, I hate all, everything about that. I think the scenes where he's like, like losing his mind, walking down the streets, covered in blood, talking to himself are so funny. But I just, you know... Yeah, no, I'm not. I mean, again, I'm not defending his character in any way. I just, but I also don't think that somehow it's like uh, secretly a feminist film at all, just because there are women of color in it, because like nobody's really empowered. And even. Oh, no, no, I wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I I definitely wasn't saying it was. I was just saying it actually is a movie where. You could say he's the protagonist, but he's really the villain in the movie. I mean, he's he's a very unlikely. Oh no, he's the villain for sure. It's it's sort of like if American Psycho didn't have any of the other male characters yeah. is is sort of what I was trying what I was implying. Um, but then the, and then there's you know, this entire scene where they're talking about Alva um, after so he assaults her in a bathroom at first and then tries to apologize and then they're all you know the all boys club is sitting around the table laughing because she dared to ask for a raise because he sexually assaulted her like it's just there's a lot of really uncomfortable stuff that it's just a reminder you know well the reason it was uncomfortable for me as well is because for me i was thinking well this is a reminder of how it was back then and then i had to take a moment and pause and think no unfortunately this is also how it is now again Right. And so I guess that's why I really, it sat very uncomfortable with me. Like maybe Donald Trump really loves that movie. I don't know. But it it just was, it was uncomfortable for me to watch a woman get like, you know, harassed and assaulted by her boss. And like, 
I, I don't know. I just kind of couldn't really deal with that part of it. But that aside, it is really interesting to kind of, I honestly think if they could have just deleted that sub plot, I could have gotten down with it. I could have gotten down with this idea of this man who thinks he's a vampire who goes, I mean, like Jesus, the part where he goes out and buys vampire teeth is hilarious. Right. You know, he's, he's waiting for his vampire teeth to come in. And when they don't, he goes and buys like plastic chompers. Like it's hilarious. He kills a pigeon and eats it. Like there are parts to this that are so funny, like in a black comedy way that like, man, if you could have just deleted that subplot, which is only pretty much used because then they need someone in the end to thrive, drive the stake through his heart, you know, and kill him. Right. And it's kind of like, did you really need to go there, though? You know, and kind of make a mockery of rape revenge. I don't know. I just, ugh. but, but, man, there are some funny scenes in this movie. You know, not not to get too into, uh, you know, Nicolas Cage's character's head or whatever, like it captures sort of the loneliness of that life, mm. you know, it's or the emptiness. Maybe loneliness is a little too empathic, but like the deck, you know, like the the the, um, you know, he goes out, he has, you know, he's picking up women. He's got this sort of very sterile, nice, but sterile place that he lives in. And it's slowly driving him mad, his his lifestyle, and and it 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 does very much capture New York at the in the late eighties or a specific New York because you know I think Juice is also New York at the right around the same time, and it's obviously a very different New York, but that sort of very sort of white yuppie, the emptiness of that, um, and and because it captures it at the time. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, they go into clubs and people are casually doing blow, everyone smoking cigarettes. Like, it's really amazing how that now feels so alien and weird. But I think that there's still that element, just because we're both native New Yorkers, I think there still very much is an element. This is something that, like, is still uh, part of New York, this uh, loneliness, even though you're in a sea of people. This yes. this feeling of, you know, disconnect or not being able to kind of, you know, dating in New York is really difficult. And I think it does. I think ultimately, if you take it as a commentary on that, on the vapidness of that lifestyle and, you know, then then it certainly works. If you take this idea of of the vampire whatever that he thinks he is as part of that unfulfillment you know like i think it works on those levels for sure i think it's also you know i mean for for you you could take whatever you want out of this commentary of how we treat mental illness and the idea that a man like him might not think he could be mentally ill so it's easier to become a vampire than to admit to an illness that has so much stigma on it when you're successful and and he definitely, from the time, you know, from the time that he thinks he got bit by Jennifer Beals to the end of the movie, he definitely believes till his death. Oh, yeah. He definitely believes that he's a vampire. And I think it becomes clearer to us in the third act whether he, in fact, is or isn't, uh, if, if not earlier. But I think it's sort of hammered home uh, in, in the third yes, act. That, that yeah. There's a lot of things that have been just going on in his head. That sort of leads us to our to our next film. I guess another one that's got some problematic stuff, and uh, that's Martin, which is a lesser-known George Romero film, and uh, that came out uh, pretty much the same year as you know what many people consider to be his masterpiece, which is Dawn of the Dead, um, the second of the of his in the zombie cycle, and the one that takes place in the mall. But uh, yeah, Martin, what did you think? 
<laughs> yeah, uh, I, yeah, I, yeah. So it is uh, a little. It's a, well. It's weird because it is Romero's favorite film. Yes, it's sort of that a makes lot it of directors. Weird. Well, a lot of directors. That's the case when you ask them what their favorite film of theirs is. It's usually not one that the public would yeah, say. Yeah, but this is, is also there, a very like. There's the, the entire first scene of Martin is him on a, a train like one of those passenger trains where people can like rent the you know cubicle to sleep in like a berth i think they're and um it. and he basically breaks into a woman's cabin and drugs her strips her and you know and and then cuts her wrist and drinks her blood but he does like sexually assault her and she and drugging her as well which like you know it's just it's well that's super- his mo he, yes, which... he does drug. He and and throughout the movie, I think he also does it. He does it to some men as well. But he he drugs people and then cuts their their arm and drinks their blood. But there is a difference between him because you eventually see him do it to men, and there's a very yes. different like di- there's a big difference between when he does it to men and women. When he does it to women, he he there's a sexual component i mean he does rape one of the women the housewife that he you know comes upon so there's like there's really weird stuff here and like for someone to say it's their favorite movie it's just a little weird to me well you know it's also interesting because in our and and it's not clear if in fact like he thinks he's a vampire um and in fact he then starts calling into a radio show and is talking as if he's a vampire you know, to the to the radio host, and it becomes this sort of hit mm-hmm. with with the with the radio audience, and a lot of that is actually played. Those conversations are played over these scenes of like what Jamie just described. You know, of of his attacks or, but um, in an interview, Romero, who uh, is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, basically all of his movies take place in Pittsburgh. He never moved to Hollywood. He very much is Pittsburgh the way John Waters is Baltimore, the way, you know, Woody Allen is the Upper West Side of New York. You know, there are specific filmmakers who who are often associated with, you know, a certain area, and he very much is Pittsburgh. And, you know, Pittsburgh in the 70s was getting hit hard by... um, a lot of the, you know, it's sort of reinvented itself since then with a lot of tech stuff and there's a lot of art scenes going on. And, you know, I think it benefited from there are major teams there. There's, you know, the, the Pittsburgh never got as bad off as some of these other towns that had been industrial or manufacturing towns. But it's a dying town. And that is going on all throughout this as, act through the movie as well. And Romero basically says that, like, whether or not Martin is, in fact, a vampire or not is not the point of the story. That's sort of just the backdrop and that it's really about these towns that are sort of going away, you know, sort of like the conversation at the beginning of of They Live, you know, sort of as things change, um, you know, Pittsburgh, I think, is also where uh, the deer hunter takes place. You know, there was this huge industry there in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and now it's now it's really dying. And you see that all over the place. And there's there's a lot of. um a lot of people are sort of unhappy or don't know what to do or there's uh Martin's cousin's boyfriend wants to he's a mechanic and he wants to leave but he doesn't you know he's not sure and so 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 I I you know I don't know how much that that is you know communicated in the movie but that it was stuff like that in an interview that I read with Romero that he sort of was sort of focusing on and and Martin can't like really connect with anyone 
It's, yeah. it's a lot of a lot of a lot of the problem that he has. Even when he's talking to the radio host, he's talking about these problems that he has connecting, and that people think being a vampire is so great, you know, and that you get lots of ladies and you have this and that, but it's not. Yeah, I mean, I think I kind of took it as Martin was more than anything really like a serial killer um who maybe just had a fetish about drinking blood it's a strange movie too because he's going to live with an older cousin of his or something or an uncle who is like a lithuanian catholic and there's this whole not really explained well backstory that in their family history there have been vampires but it could just be of course you know, a folklore thing where people thought there were really vampires. I mean, they find vampire graves all of the time in like Romania, um, where people, of course, you know, think about witches in Salem. Like, were there really, of course, I would love there to really be witches in Salem, but you know, you're talking about people, innocent people who were accused of being something and murdered. Um, and so it's kind of that same idea. And so there is this element that, um, it is a family curse, which Martin has. Um, though how true that is, it seems there is kind of this duality where Martin might not be very stable, but his cousin certainly isn't either. And so neither, you know, they're, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum in a way, but you know, neither of them are right. Um, and the cousin is, you know, is accusing him of being a vampire and trying garlic and crosses. There's even an exorcism sequence and none of it works. Right. And, but, but then by the same token, while, while, you know, Martin kind of laughs at it and says magic isn't real. He also has, there's these great, I think the best part of the movie are these black and white sequences, which kind of are his, uh, I guess, mental, you know, daydreams. Um, And he has these kind of visions of being chased by like a mob with pitchforks, kind of like the very old school, like, you know, monster movie Frankenstein kind of, you know, feel where he's, you know, being chased and um, coming upon, you know, the fair maiden in the bed that he can suck her blood and, you know, things like that. There are these like uh, real fantasy sequences um, that Martin has. So, I mean, they're both kind of, you know, they're both not stable and they both kind of have this thing where the truth is Martin, again, I just think is like a serial killer and living in, in a fantasy world, which is something which serial killers do. He's drugging and killing women. I mean, it just, it's kind of like a flashier serial killer. It's very different from Vampire's Kiss, as you said, because I just think he's a serial killer, whereas Vampire's Kiss, you're kind of like, what? You know, what is this? But but Martin, of course, like, it's a strange movie. It's very, you know, it's a little low budget and um, interesting, for sure. And and it's, you know, George Romero is absolutely a horror master. I mean, he it's, you know, he's up there with, you know, John Carpenter and, you know, sort of the top names, especially in that sort of 70s and 80s period. And this is a lesser known of of, of his films and is not in, you know, when people think of George Romero, you think Night of the Living Dead, mm, Dawn yes. of the Dead, Day of the Dead, you know, that whole series. Um, but, and it is an interesting, uh, you know, um, it's another one that critics really like. Critics like this, and um, they really like the next movie we're going to talk about. And so, it's definitely one to 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 look out for and to watch uh, to watch for. Um, I think, and it's an interesting take. You know, it's um, it's a full decade earlier than Vampire's Kiss, and you know this association with mental illness and vampire vampirism. Well, I think it is interesting that it's it's two white men in these first two movies. 
Um, and, you know, vampirism is kind of related to sucking the life out of usually women. So yeah, no, there's a certain element there for sure that's kind of interesting that I don't think was intended. But um, I, I do think it was very intentional for the character in Vampire's Kiss to be that yuppie Patrick Bateman. I do think that was intentional for sure. But I just think that you can certainly glean a little bit of a feminist kind of read on there, too. That's maybe more me than anything. But we, I, I personally threw in this last movie just because I needed a break from these crazy men. So there is a cult classic that is a favorite of mine called Let's Scare Jessica to Death. That was the last movie that we kind of threw in for this. It is different, as Chico, you mentioned earlier, because Jessica herself is not a vampire, nor does she think she is a vampire. Um, it's more about the events that kind of unfold around her and um and but you know her mental state is in fact uh an important part yes and that's why we included it it. yeah yeah Yeah, for sure and so uh let's scare jessica to death you know jessica is uh she had suffered a mental breakdown and so her husband and uh her husband's friend decided to um take her away after she had been institutionalized they came and got her they got this remote farm that they brought her to and um the idea is really that she'll be out in the country it'll be less you know uh stimulating and stressful and she can kind of recuperate unfortunately they bought a haunted farmhouse of course because this is a horror movie um And so they find this woman, Emily, who's living nearby, and she kind of just randomly shows up at their place um, one night. And of course, we're talking 1971, so it's very much this, hey, yeah, let's all just have a hippie powwow in the living room, and it's cool, you can stay over, we don't know you. But Emily has this kind of bohemian vibe to her. She's definitely hitting on um, the husband and the best friend. I mean, she's kind of you know there's there's definitely flirtatious vibes there um but uh but jessica like slowly little things start happening as emily shows up where now you're like questioning what jessica sees so she sees a body in the lake but it might not really have been there because nobody else sees it there are little things that start happening where you're like "Uh oh is jessica losing her mind um, when they go into town, oh, and the, the town is also super creepy. The, the like people yeah. there are very standoffish. And when she, when they go into town to sell some antiques that they found, um, they learn that the house that they were living in had this family and there was a daughter named Abigail and she had drowned in the lake, but the local village, you know, the whole rumor is that Abigail's actually a vampire and that she now is like secretly still in the village and she's kind of like looking for victims to, you know, feed upon. Um, then there's this really great scene where Jessica finds this little girl and the little girl leads her to a dead body. But then, of course, the body isn't there when everybody, you know, comes to to help her. And so really, like, you really question Jessica's sanity throughout it until kind of the end yeah and and it you know it's one of these very unique um movies one of the things that made it reminded me of although it's a totally different movie but like was um carnival of souls yes yes um you know it it it, it's not uh, i don't think that the film did they did they make any other movies the the person i I have no idea yeah, I, I, it, it sort of is this very unique thing. It's only, it's really mostly just got these these four characters, and this, you know, this this, you know, this farmhouse, and it's like, and yet, it's it, 
it has all the settings of a haunted house movie, but it's not a haunted house movie. Right. It's a movie that has a haunted house in it, but it really is much more just sort of about this woman and her mind state. And, um, it's, it's, it's really, it's interesting. And, um, I, I actually didn't know it. And, uh, again, it, it, it's one that also has shown up on a lot of top, you know, critics lists. Um, and it's, um, it's just also very different, you know, the early 70s was this period where a lot of these movies were going more for the gore and the shock and the grindhouse and they were meant to be shown in, in drive-ins and things like that. And this one is is a lot more sort of lyrical and, and uh, sort of slower paced, um, but I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it's it's again, um, it's not, you know, you're 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 in her head. It's not clear yeah, if yeah. if if what you're seeing is real or if what you're seeing is from her own and you know the other interesting thing is, you know, her husband loves her. So when he's being like overprotective or not sure, he's not like judging her mental state. You know, he's not being like, Oh, you're crazy. Right. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's the theme of, you know, again, this is something that keeps coming up, a woman on the the verge of a nervous breakdown. And this is something that, you know, the horror, it's a horror trope that's used a lot. I think what's interesting about this, if you've read the book House of Psychotic Women, the cover is actually a shot from this movie. Um, There's an image of the two women of Emily and um, Jessica in the lake together. And that's that cover. But it is very much this idea that in horror, it is, you watch a woman seeing things happen and then no one believing her. I mean, this is, I mean, that's like a tried, a tried and true kind of trope in horror. And in this, it's kind of, it's very suffocating and sad because you are seeing the things that Jessica sees. And when people aren't believing her, it's frustrating. At the same time, as Chico kind of said, her husband is just being very careful to not let her slip back into, you know, a mental state where she is unsafe or she, you know, might be a harm to herself or others. Like he is trying to protect her and keep her healthy. Yes. At the same time, you see the things that she's seeing and it's kind of this really suffocating frustration, which I think one of the reasons this trope is always used, not only because, of course, it can be used very effectively in a horror movie, but I think also because it kind of speaks to the female experience. It speaks to the fact that, you know, women can talk about things like, you know, harassment or you know, equal pay or the, the the issues that women face. And you will always get men who say that's not really real. That's not really happening. Right. You know, and I, and I think that it's one of the reasons, of course, I love horror so much. And and but I think it's it's just something that gets to be to play out in the horror arena much better than in other arenas. It's an interesting there's a gaslighting element, of course, and, and just kind of the frustration, the very unique frustration of being a woman. But it is interesting because, you know, at the end of the day, is is Abigail the vampire on the loose or is Jessica, has she kind of had another breakdown? And you kind of have to guess for yourself. So I guess that's why we kind of wanted to tie it into this overall theme because we don't have, it's not Jessica thinking she's a vampire, but it's, it's certainly reality being questioned. I do think that the end does, you know, we, we are supposed to definitely think one one or the other of, of those two things. But 
up until that point, I think the movie definitely it it keeps you on the edge of your you know mm. like sort of trying to figure out exactly what's going on, and it's got some striking visual set pieces, and um, so yeah, are are they or aren't they? Now I I have a question for you, Jamie. Okay. Um, if you if you in fact had the choice. Would you want to be a vampire? Like if someone, if it turned out, you know, you you saved a vampire's life and they said to you, well, you know, in return for saving my life, I can make you one of us. You know, would would you would you take them up on that? Um, uh, It's such a tough one because initially my gut is yes. But I think one of the things that gets explored really well in more current vampire movies, actually, um... What, what we do in the shadows is really we'll touch on this in another episode because it's yes. so hilarious but i think one of the things they pull out really well is this idea of loneliness because it's true yes. you're constantly seeing people that you connect with die and so i also don't really like people so you know um i think the one element that is kind of interesting though is that the you know the carnivore aspect of it the aspect that do, could you really be okay with killing people and I don't know. I, I think I would, though. I think I would do it. Well, so I, I that's connected to this whole notion of, like, to become a vampire, you give up your soul. Right. That and part so I don't I care think about, that, to be honest. Like, well, I was going to say, and I think if you give up your soul, you're going to be a little less grossed out about the no, idea that's of ripping true someone's too. throat out and drinking their blood. Yeah. Or you could be like Angel on Buffy and only eat animals, right. drink animals' blood. I would rather kill people than animals, probably. Right, right. But, you know, yeah. Or, yeah, actually, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive. I would be those vampires because, like, uh, Tom Hiddleston, he basically, oh, it's so good. It's a Yeah, Jarmish, I don't know that one. Yeah. Uh, Jim Jarmusch. And uh, he Tom Hiddleston goes to the, it, it's in Detroit. He goes to the hospital. He pays off the guy. He gets blood. And they kind of just, him and Tilda Swinton survive on that. And then they make really cool music. They live in this awesome house. And they're like, I would totally do it if I could be them. If I could be right. down well, with, you could. Yeah, with Tilda, sure. then hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, minus her Asian, you know, stupidity with Doctor I, I think I would do it. Um, as you and I both know, um, as humans, we also lose people. Mm. And um, that is a reality for humans, and it's a reality for vampires. And if you live long enough as a human, um, you know, I happen to be lucky, I, you could say, enough to have two grandparents who are in their mid-90s. And I'm pretty sure that none of their peers are alive. Right. Like, I know that my grandfather was a navigator on a bomber, and he quite literally is the last of, like, 14 crew alive from the bomber that he flew on in World War II. Like, that's a weird feeling. So that that whole notion can happen to people, too. If you live long enough, everyone you know will, will, will in fact die. But I think that, yeah, there is that loneliness of, of the vampire. And I think that's another reason why all three of these movies, um, the genre does, uh, you know, you can explore loneliness through the, the vampire genre because it's real. It's, mm. it's something, you know, it's something that definitely affects vampires. You know, you live long enough. Everyone, you know, is going to die. And the world completely changes and Right. Yes, yeah. that's another yeah. thing, the world changing. But you know, that that isn't just, you know, vampires. I mean, I think everybody that Yoda grew up with died too, you know? Yeah. Well, on that note <laughs> Yes. Uh, we do well, on that have note, wait, some vampires we have to, to give away. Uh, we have good news. Yeah. We can announce the this this month's winner of the um Underworld trilogy uh on D V D. Let's get the uh, Cthulhu uh, Fez out here. We got, we got uh, all the names have been put in, and uh, here we're gonna. All right, 
And uh, we got okay. Donna Eason, uh, you are the you are the now you are soon to be proud uh, owner of the Underworld trilogy. And if you uh, if you if you act fast, I, I believe that the most recent one is in fact in the, still in the theaters. Yes, um, yeah. passes so, the Bechdel uh, test. Bechdel. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so you know, DM us your uh, DM us your address, and we will uh, we will get that out to you. Hopefully quicker than the last ones, which did go out. Um, and uh, you you definitely should have received them by now. But if you haven't, you will receive them. But yes, so um, you know, keep listening. Um, you know, we've got we're putting up a lot of really great stuff on the Patreon. Uh, this week we just did another uh, great great debate um, involving uh, Friday the Thirteenth in Camp Crystal Lake, and uh, there's all kinds of since the last episodes come out. There's been a couple of more mini podcasts, a couple more articles. Um, and there's way more to come. Definitely. And just a small announcement. Um, if you are in New York City um, this Thursday, January 26th at 9.30 p.m., come on down to Nighthawk Cinema. I'm doing Kevin Geeks Out. It's going to be really awesome. We're talking about ripoff cinema. Of course, I'm talking about ripoff horror movies. Uh, we've got The Blaxploitation Exorcist, Bollywood Freddy Krueger, um, and a couple other surprises. It's going to be awesome. Um, you can get tickets at Nighthawk's website, um, but come check it out if you are in New York City. And uh, if you can't make it this Thursday, there is another show next week that our Chico Leo will be attending. Uh, we'll post more about it on Twitter. That's at the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn uh, on February 1st at 7 p.m. So um, we'd love to kind of meet you guys. So if you can make it, come on down and, and uh, grab me and say hi, please. All right. Well, thank you guys, as always, for a great episode of The Scream Squad. We will be back soon in February with a new episode. Uh, check us out on Patreon and Twitter, and uh, we'll catch you guys next time in the dungeon. 